0: Welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. This is COVID pandemic recording, so you may hear the odd, weird noise like crows, or my neighbor's kids, or a lot of times my guest's kids, and sometimes this little schnauzer that's next to me, Minette, and it's an exercise in acceptance. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember learning how to read? Do you remember how old you were? Do you remember the kinds of books you read? Do you remember not knowing how to read? and then knowing how to read? And lastly, Do you remember how it felt when people expected more of you than you could give when you were an early reader? We're going to have a variety of different answers to that. And we could ask this about any of the things that we take totally for granted as adults. Do you remember earlier learning how to walk, how to crawl? Do you remember with your own kids or kids that you know? When they were in that walking, crawling stage, could you make them learn it any faster? Could you make them balance or step foot to foot? How much time do we give kids before we say something is patently wrong? Sometimes it's really obvious. There's just some balance issue that is clearly not happening but other times it's a question of parenting ego getting involved the pediatrician asks at every well child visit are they walking yet and you say not really do i need to worry you go to kid gathering parent gatherings and your kid is the only one who's not walking And yet you can't force it. We replicate this entire kind of thing around kids and reading. But with the added weight that an entire school philosophy depends on kids reading at a certain age, not being allowed to put that off or take their own time about it, medicalizing it or pathologizing it, making it immediately an issue with a capital I, maybe all caps, and then basing all learning from that point on, on reading. So if a kid has difficulty doing it, they're prevented from learning in the system that follows, they're, they're iced out of learning after that, which is quite interesting because that really isn't the case for very young kids. If you're not learning through reading, which of course is absurd, there are a couple of kids that'll be reading at kindergarten. I'm sure their parents will get sort of an extra jolt of personal pride out of it, although it has really nothing to do with them any more than the kids walking did. But Most of the time in those first grade or two, the kids are learning through various different stimuli, through songs, through repetition, through games, and then that turns off and everything turns into reading and writing, and that is the only methodology for kids that's acceptable. A broad statement, but a pretty accurate one. So if you're not reading, you fall further and further behind every year. So, first of all, I have philosophical concerns with this. I don't think that the only way for someone to learn is reading. If that were true, does that mean Helen Keller didn't know anything? Does that mean anybody who has any disability that prevents them from learning? Sometimes we give this big pass to people, for example, saying, oh, they're blind and they didn't learn to read, you know, by nine but they're blind. So, I've got, well, then why not have that same grace, that same clear space for kids who have difficulty learning the mechanics of reading by nine? And I think, you know, really one of the problems I have with all of this is that even if you do get special help, and some kids do, some kids don't, and it is still very, very spotty, And it is still very, very disjointed what kind of help your kid needs and will get. Even with all of that, there is still an element of shame about all of this. And it's really pervasive. It happens parent to child. It happens teacher of the main classroom to child. It happens special help to child. It happens peer to child. I don't think we do enough to relieve the burden of shame. Shame is an aspect of turning inwards the contempt that you feel from others. And if you are already, first of all, all of us stop learning when we're faced with a wall of contempt. It diminishes our ability. It diminishes our capacity to learn. So imagine already having a diminished capacity to understand what is really an incredibly difficult concept as quite a small child, and then adding to that contempt, shame, and learning shutdown you're asking somebody who already has difficulty to shoulder the additional difficulty of learning while being shamed. And of course, kids internalize that and ultimately pay quite a price for it. And we pay a price because we've distracted the learning with shame and therefore we have not heard the best of this student. We have not opened the world enough to this student. We often find we have our own feelings of shame around this. Other parents bragging, and we feel like we're not able to adequately defend our kids. And then we feel defensive. Why are we even doing that? It's very, very difficult. Extended family can be desperately unhelpful with this. They are inquiring after the child, but the way that they're inquiring allows only for one good answer, which is they're doing great or better than everybody else. Especially around the holidays, it's just a burden. It's an unnecessary burden. So with all of that, what can we do? Well, first, we can acknowledge that not everybody learns the same way. Not everybody learns at the same time. If you have more than one kid, you can pinpoint lots of ways in which you thought what worked with one kid would work with another and doesn't. That's one of the things I've talked about Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences before. That's one of the ways in which I find them very, very useful. My kids learned how to spell the word Massachusetts by singing it to Yankee Doodle. Okay, so... Little bit of decoding through song, music happened to reach them in a way that other things, the rote memorization, were not. That's part of using different learning styles. But the other thing is to understand that, first of all, the way we were taught is a long time ago and may not be the best way, and may not even be the best way for this kid. Maybe we were taught the best way for us and we really took to it. But for this kid, Maybe it is, maybe it's not. we are allowed to experiment, and those experiments are allowed to fail, and the failure of those experiments is not the failure of the child at hand. Many, many kids learned how to read using phonetics years ago. And before that, many, many kids learned how to read using the Bible. And before that... Many, many kids learned how to read using whatever cuneiform tablets they had. So there is no real one way. Sounding out words works for some kids. It doesn't work for others. Phonetics ultimately was found to not serve enough kids, and a lot of teaching has gone past it, around it. But if you have a kid with a reading disability, phonetics may be a perfect way to teach your kid. Maybe not all kids, this kid. And the other thing to do is just start looking out there and seeing what current thoughts on literacy are. Try to find stories of people who have the same kind of difficulty your kid does. My kid had, my oldest kid had real issues with the patterns staying still. Because I think one of the parts of this is that we tend to sort of feel, once we've mastered something, that it was natural or that it was easy or that it is the way that it is. It's not. A few minutes thought will show you that English makes no sense. People who speak other languages often remark on this. Tough, cough, plow, dough. Those are all spelled almost identically, and sound completely different. You may have a visual processing disorder. One of my kids had that. The B, the P, the D, and the Q are all the same shape. When you read printed, very often they're all the same. That made it almost impossible for her to decode. Those words, because for her visual processing, those shapes never stayed still. She couldn't trust them. She relied very heavily on an extraordinary memory and the contextual ability to guess if she read the first part of a line. What's funny about this is, I was a very early reader. I was considered extremely successful in this. I read well ahead of my grade. For my entire time at school, but I did this with music. Because I depended so heavily on my ear and I took violin lessons as a child, I would often assume that I knew what was coming up next in this phrase by the first couple notes and context and memory. It's very weird that we would have this same kind of way to process, but such very different things that we were processing. Although maybe it's not that funny. Reading music is a v- version of reading. It is the act of reading. So for this kid, I found a technique, a, I guess a a book and a whole program around phonetics with a twist. And I loved this twist and it was called phonographics. And the person that developed it was a literacy specialist. And what she did is she said, how frequent is the O-U-G-H sound for ow? Well, O-W is much more frequent. So let's say that, that one will rise to the top of the list. And that's how she did it. She had every sound. And then underneath it would be in statistically likely order the way in which it was spelled. It was almost like reverse engineering English and reading and decoding and spelling. My daughter has mixed feelings about it, but it certainly assisted her in reading and with her visual processing. And when I say assist, I mean assist. It was assist as in when your child is walking And you make sure they have some sturdy things to pull themselves up on. Some little stools. Make sure the bookcases are all tethered to the wall. Make sure that any sharp tables or other things are adequately padded. But I couldn't make her decode any faster than she could do it herself. All I could do was refrain from shaming her and assist in a learning environment. And that's what I did. And you know what? She's fine. She was a late reader. She is not a non reader. In fact, she loves reading. She ended up working for her college's disability services, helping other people find easier ways to read by using the printed word plus audio because she had a visual processing disorder, but not an auditory one. And she could. Do a double sided learning much faster. And that's how she went through her early college. By the time she graduated, she no longer needed that. And if you met her now, you would have no sense that this was a difficulty for her ever. We are raising adults, not children. We have children, but we're raising adults. What do we want those adults to be? We want them to be happy. So I I always say happy, successful, like it's a hyphenated word. We want them to be fully functional. And part of the deal about being fully functional is not carrying the weight and baggage of shame. Next up, part two of my conversation with Julie Leonard. It's so interesting you should say this. Very recently, I was reading there's like a worker happiness report that comes out every year. Uh, I can't remember offhand what's the organization that puts it together. Gallup poll might actually be the one. Okay. And one of the things that comes up all the time, right, is worker satisfaction. And it's always polls based like a year or two ago. So there's not going to be any COVID stuff on it yet. But one of the things people who are happy in their jobs, and there's not that many of them, but the one thing that is like this throughput for all of them is being able to be part of the decision-making of how to get the job done, right? You agree with your managers that this is the job that needs to be done and this is the goal to reach and this is the quality. And the happiest workers are ones where it's now like, now go do it however you want to and come back to me for support or, you know, you might need more funding, you might need more equipment, you might need more time, come back to me. That's what our check-ins are. Right. And and I look at that and I think that's that's work for like a lot of people today. And it's funny that we that's not what the preparation is at all. The preparation is put your head down and do what I say and those are jobs
1: everybody wants to leave. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's it's the soft skills that I think with technology, and especially now with with COVID, those are the kinds of things that you're you're going to have to be good at doing that because you're not in the office, you're not checking in with your bosses and walking by every day to make sure things are happening. You're at home. Yeah, if you're not self-directed in in getting your work done. There's going to be repercussions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's I think that's a skill that yeah a lot of people don't have that, and I think that it's because of their earlier education yeah yeah so it, feel, it
0: feels it feels like it is it feels like a habit
1: right you know
0: and and what's interesting about that I think is that the other side of this in polls show that people aren't happy with that habit like they're not happy in workplaces where that's what it is I tell you what to do you do it my way you know <laughs> yeah yeah most people don't don't particularly like that they like to be able to say well under these circumstances I changed this procedure to be more like this and I checked in and you know all the, all those places where you get to I don't know you get to be
1: a full person somehow right. yeah mm. and I, I think that that takes confidence and I think a lot of times yeah the children become unconfident because in, in a school setting, the confident ones are the ones that are, that have all A's because they've done yeah. what it has told them to do. And if yeah. you're not getting all A's and you're, un, un, you're not confident, you don't think that you're smart. And if you're not smart, you're not successful. And if you're not successful, it, it just snowballs. And I, I think that children sometimes set themselves up for, for failure because they say, well, I'm not good in math or I'm not good in science, but right. you know, this.
0: Right. It's funny. I I remember feeling this in college, but I don't think I really fully processed it till I was in my mid-40s, which is this circular logic that says, if you work hard, you'll get good grades. Right. And there was so many kids all the way through school for whom some of these topics were effortless. Like, they didn't work hard. (laughs) They didn't work hard, and I worked so hard hard just to get the C. Yeah. You know, but I was proud of it but also sort of felt like, you know, I was going to be alone being proud of it. I wasn't going to get on the honor roll and I wasn't going to get the scholarship for, you know, biology or whatever. And it's like, wait a minute though. <laughs> they did yeah. In, in certain things. They did not work hard. And then some people did work hard and got the material, but it, it was it was almost like that was irrelevant to like grasping it. What, what I really needed was, you know, that structural support to have a learning environment to actually get the material. Right. I think I came to, like I realized it in college, but I came to really realize it in my forties because there's a series on YouTube that I think is wired magazine where they get a, somebody who's a real expert in like a high, high thinky field, like astrophysics or something like that, or sound or, and, and they have to, in the course of this video, explain what you do to a five-year-old. Oh, boy. Explain what you do to a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, and an adult. Wow. (laughs) And it was there that I was like, oh, so you could do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. If I'm not getting the 15-year-old version, for God's sake, let's go back to the 10 for a while. (laughs) Right.
1: Yeah, Exactly.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I also think one of the hard parts of that is it does discourage the kids who are working hard but are not getting much of a reward for a payoff. It's not about mastery, it's about a grade and that's about comparing myself to kids that did great cuz it was easy, you know. Yeah. Well, what was
1: Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say for example, um my son if if he was still homeschooled, he would probably be I would be helping him learn ninth grade information. Okay. Where he was transforming, um, you know, in transitioning into public school for the first time, I said to him, hey, why don't we do eighth grade? Mm. He'll give you a good grasp of how to be in school, what you're expected of, how to manage your time, how to get up early, get your correct sleep, remember to bring everything you need to with class. And that way, when you enter high school, which is a big leap as it is, you'll already have the how to go to school under your belt, right? as well as kind of helping you out and solidifying some of the English and the math. And he had absolutely no problem doing that. And I found it amazing that if I was told that I had to redo eighth grade, and that was going to put another year of education that I have to be in school, I would be devastated. Yeah. And he thought it was the most sensible way to go about being the best educated person he could. Well that makes a lot of sense. I, yeah, you know what? I'll do 8th grade this year. Some of it might be easier, but I'm also might be struggling with other aspects that's not education. It's the social aspects. Yeah. And like what you were saying the it's the mastery Yeah. He felt perfectly comfortable going into eighth grade. And, you know, I said, go ahead and do your best if, if, you know, what's the worst that could possibly happen? Right.
0: Right. And honestly, it's not that bad. Right. I was I was going to say, I love the phrase and I love this phrase just in, you know, adult jobs too. manage for success here. Right. You know, and that's managing for success. Let's think if we step back a little bit, you'll have like a less steep, drastic learning curve getting all of this stuff at once, which makes so much sense.
1: Right. Yep. And I was, I was telling my partner when we were preparing his room, you know, I'm like, well, we need to get him a desk because he's never had a desk before because we didn't learn at desks. Mm. I said, we need a desk. We need to get, I need him to give him all of the tools he can to succeed at a public education, at a brick and mortar school. And that includes the supplies that they list. Here's your supply list, what you need to purchase in your backpacks even the right haircut and the right clothing because as homeschoolers, there's no one else sitting beside you that you need to look like or look better than, or have the same hairstyle as, and he's always had long hair. And last Saturday we went to the barber and for the first time in his life, got a Mm. short haircut Mm. because, and, and it was interestingly enough, he said he felt a lot more confident about it too. Interesting. Yeah. There is that part that he wants to, fit in with, with everybody else in the school and not be that, you know, weird homeschooler.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. And actually it's funny. Cause somebody asked me about that. I did a um, Facebook live on this, her son, she said to her son that I was doing these interviews and that I had a radio show. And he said, she should talk about the stigma of homeschooling. And I was like the stigma, but I understood what it was. It's like using it as a cheap character yeah. profile in, in media. But one of the really interesting things was, is even as she told me that he said that, he also followed up with, but actually that can't hold in a pandemic, can it? Because people have to figure, like it's not irrational to homeschool during this time to say, I don't like the remote learning. I'm going to make it easier on my entire family and therefore I'm going to homeschool and then when it's safe again, I'll be back in school. So that stigma kind of, it, it's going to be interesting to see how are you going to use that to be in place of the manic pixie dream girl. Oh, homeschooled when it becomes, oh, wait, half of them were. Yes. <laughs> uh, the football star was homeschooled too that year. Like yep. yeah, everybody was homeschooled.
1: Yeah. I, 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 think it, I think it is good for the homeschooling community because I think people that feel like, There's an us and a them. Now they're the them. Yeah, they have found themselves being one of those, being put in a position by force to be put in the position, as opposed to making that choice. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, they do make the choice that okay, yes, this is what's going to be best to homeschool, and they're making that choice because of the pandemic. But I, I do think that's one of the good things that are coming about from the pandemic. I think that. Families are, they, they're kind of stuck at home with each other more. They're learning yeah. more about each other. They're getting along better. And they're learning to do things that they never thought they would do, like like homeschool their child.
0: Yeah. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things that I've heard, actually, it was a criticism when I first said I was going to homeschool. My ex-mother-in-law said, what, you'd want to spend all day with them. And I thought, uh, I like them. Yeah, <laughs> I had them. I'm going to keep them. Right. But there is this aspect of it's not bad to spend enough time with your kid at any given age that you pass through the, this is difficult, and into the, eh, it's fine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and spending a lot of time with people, that's what happens. You figure out how to get along with them. Right. Yeah. And there's nothing not only is there nothing wrong with that, these are the people that will be picking our nursing homes. It's true. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> Learning how to get along with them is in many ways our job. <laughs> yeah. Definitely.
1: And I again I think it's it's goes back to what a reason that maybe you chose to homeschool was because you did not want a teacher telling your child how to learn or when to learn. So then you as a parent respect your child's choices as well. That's, like, that's the reason a good I point. didn't put her in school is because I wanted her to have choices. So at home, then I, I allow her to have choices and as long as she's relatively safe in those choices, I don't care what you wear. Yeah. Yeah, veto power, but... Right, and I, so I think that you, you do get along better when you say, no, you, yeah. you have to do your homework. You have to get up and take a shower. You have to go to school tomorrow. That's a lot of have-tos, and I think it creates a lot of arguments.
0: Yeah, I agree, and actually, that's one of the things I want to point out about this remote schooling. It's funny, a lot of people, they complain about it, but they don't want to do anything about it, but I think that you end up now you now no longer have an actual teacher to take on that sort of punitive "do what I say when I say to do it." Yeah. And now, as a parent, people are put in this really untenable position of micromanager, punisher, sit there and absorb a way that is—it's wrong to say a disbelieve parents who say their kids are fine doing it, but I think they're compliant. It certainly isn't optimum learning when you have. When you have to just sit in front of a video screen all day and and have information thrown to you, most kids that is not most human beings that is not a way that we take information in efficiently or effectively. Yeah, and it's funny to me sometimes when people are mad about that and mad about having to become, you know, judge, jury, and executioner on it, but also mad about the idea of you could just write a proposal, homeschool, spend two hours a day doing some education stuff and work the rest of the time. You could do that two hours at lunch and at dinner. You could do that two hours on the weekend. Absolutely. You sort of stand there going, I am throwing you a life, a life preserver. I'm throwing it. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) It's right there. You said you were drowning. I've now thrown you (laughs) fifty. Climb on them. Make make yourself a little house.
1: (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I think especially, but in the younger years too, when when, as as you said earlier, they will learn to read. They are going to learn the stuff. Yeah. There's no cutoff date. If if you're not reading by the time you're ten, you can still learn to read when you're eleven. Um, they're not taking that away from you
0: yes and the people that I know that are functionally illiterate and the people that I know that are in fact illiterate and have had to go back as adults to you know work on and really learn basic literacy none of them were homeschooled right and I'm not saying one comes to the other I'm saying you can't go across the board and say well how will they ever read oh they do They do. They do. And there's no guarantee that they will if they were in school. So that just, that just canceled that out. Yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about balancing work, community, and creativity. Yeah, the reading thing is really interesting. Uh, Kids, we had a 98% literacy rate in Massachusetts before compulsory schooling. Really? Yeah. Now, I'm going to put a footnote on that and say that's not a super scientific number because who knows if they counted women? Who knows if they counted, you know, anybody of color? But it was a very high literacy rate because it was part of the whole Protestant ethic of come to other countries colonize them and everybody reads the bible
1: sure sure
0: so there really was high literacy people want to find stuff out and i think they i think the only times they really don't do that is when there is some big issue in the way in which case that needs support or they're so beat down they feel like they can't yeah
1: that is beyond their Their education, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't have the ability to do that. I did buy a a book kind of
0: system for my oldest daughter. It wasn't phonetics, but it worked through the sounds and the way they're spelled and acknowledged that it's like holdovers from a zillion languages and Norse and that, you know, the sound, ooh, could be spelled six different ways. Right. Yeah. But what's the most likely one statistically? And then it went through and it had, there was a chart. So just statistically, what's, what's the likelihood there? But one of the things that the author did when she was getting her PhD in, you know, literacy and learning is worked with a lot of illiterate adults and almost to a person. They would say, I can't do this. It's too much for me. And she was like, that's what you heard at seven and you took it in. Like you're 37 now. You're yeah. not going to let a seven-year-old tell you what to do. So we'll figure out a workaround. But it is interesting how much that that stuff stays with us for our whole lives. So kids are getting it now for what's going to stay with them their whole lives. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and know? then they they
1: learn not to enjoy reading. Right. Which is totally devastating as, as I, I love reading so you know when you oh i don't like to read i'm like well then you're reading the wrong thing yes yes if, if you don't like to, what what are you reading oh well yeah i wouldn't i don't want to read that either dick and jane books or some of the twaddle that's out there and you know you're like okay you don't have to read that yeah my my son only reads non-fiction right because he does not understand why someone would read anything about something that was fantasy right that's just storytelling i he reads for information yeah so okay that's that's fine <laughs> yeah
0: yeah i yeah it's it's counterproductive to make somebody feel bad that they're not reading on an arbitrary schedule
1: right like it's just or what or what you think that they should be reading like oh you have to read all the great yeah literary works of shakespeare well you don't really have to do that
0: right <laughs> Right. Yeah, you don't. And, you know, I was I was always like, get familiar with it because it's going to unlock other references you don't understand. Right. But you certainly don't have to spend a solid year on it unless you enjoy it. And my nephew had something like this where my sister was banging horns with him when he was in high school because he didn't read. He didn't read. He kept getting in trouble because he's not reading. He's not reading. And I went and talked to him and he said, oh, I read. I just don't read what I'm supposed to. And I thought, oh, (laughs) man, that's a way to create a non-reader. Right. Yeah. Everything counts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Um, Man, you just, and and by doing that, you've made it, I don't know, you've made it about a teacher's ego. You've made it about, I don't know. It's not going to, he's not going to love it, whatever he's forced to read now. Yeah. Yeah. It's just going to be done under duress. And we just don't learn well like that.
1: <laughs> no. You know,
0: we know so much about learning. It's really interesting how hard it is to apply it. But I do understand that it's hard to apply if you are in an institution that's providing child care and doing, you know, learning goals for 30 kids at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: Yeah, but if if you don't need to do that, you don't need to do that. You truly don't. <laughs> um so what do you think was one of the most surprising things about
1: homeschooling? Um I don't know. I think <laughs> I think I was well, I was hoping for a better relationship with my younger kids than I had with my older. Mm. So was I surprised when I got that? I wasn't, but I think that was one of the I wasn't surprised because that everything I read said that if you take school out of the equation, you're not going to be arguing about anything related to school. And oh, 80% of what parents argue about is school. Parents and children argue about school because that takes up most of their time. So if you took away the school, you wouldn't have those school arguments. Wow. Get along better with your children and then and then it just snowballs from there and then then they're more likely to learn from you and they're more likely to spend time with you because you're not arguing. So although it wasn't a surprise, it was a pleasant surprise mm. that I really, really was kinda of hoping would happen. So I, I think that that's probably what it was, that I was really surprised that when you Talk to so many parents and they're like, oh, my gosh, my eight-year-old is driving me crazy. My 10-year-old is driving me crazy. Wait till they're 12. My 12-year-old is driving, (laughs) well, wait till they're 15. And you just look at like, "Mm." That was all of it. That's all the time time I had. (laughs) My children. And my children are not angels. Yeah. But they get along and they get along with each other. Maybe that's the most surprising. They get along with each other so well.
0: I agree with that. My kids were very different when they homeschooled than when they elected to go into school. Even though yeah. it was their own choice, the relationships between them. Yeah. Uh,
1: so yeah, yeah. And, and my daughter is already. She's like, I'm. I'm so, you know, I'm. I'm kind of nervous about Jaden going to school. He's gonna be just like all those other kids. <laughs> but I think it is. I think she is kind of knows that she's gonna miss him. You know, as her as her little brother hanging out all the time. Yeah. So, but they, you know, yeah, they get along, they get along very well and they get along with me and they get along with their older siblings and their, their older sisters are always, oh, I wish mom homeschooled us. You guys are so lucky.
0: (laughs) Yeah. 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 I remember my kids even noticing that when they did go into school, because they elected to go into public school, the older two both went to About half of second grade. My oldest went to half of fourth grade. And I remember them coming home and saying, my people really don't like their brothers and sisters. Like at all. But one of my favorite moments was around the table. And because my oldest and my youngest have three daughters, oldest and youngest both had learning disabilities. And my middle child up until high school did not. So my oldest was reading, you know, a good good year-ish behind most of the time. My middle child was reading three to four years ahead, and my youngest child was reading about a year behind. So there are these moments that I just loved where my oldest would push something over to my middle child and say, read that for me, would you? And she would read it out loud, and then the middle would look up and say, I don't understand what any of it means. And then the older would explain to her what it meant.
1: (laughs) I was like, this is great. Without once, and nobody said, "Oh, what are you stupid?" No. Or you know, you, what you can't read that, or it's just, "Oh, okay." Well, right now, I'm, I'm, I'll teach you this. Then,
0: and of course, I was working on my own business at the time, so I was like at a desk in the same room, but like, oh, great that just handled itself (laughs) like you know my middle daughter for like a solid year decided with her with her younger sister that they should just do a ton on mythology it was very funny and she just decided she loved this whole thing so she got all the stuff out of the out of the library and I feel a little bit like she may have you know she was kind of play acting being a teacher too but fine she was teaching that's all fine right she she would make up quizzes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was, like, was like, to my youngest, you don't have to take it unless right. you want to take it. <laughs> so she is not going to grade or flunk you just so that you right. know, <laughs> which wasn't the intention for sure. But it was like, it was funny to have them sort of grab some of the things that from school and then just sort of right. apply them. My my oldest, when she was you know six, wanted me to take attendance and lunch money. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny are yeah. you here oh yes you are here <laughs> <laughs> let me make a check mark by your name check by your name yeah, for a minute I wasn't sure if you were here but I guess you are
1: today <laughs> it is I, I think it is funny that I know my kids the same thing they went through that time because school is so normalized and yeah. expected when you watch like cartoons or or children's television shows they're always going to school yeah and and they go to school and they they do these pranks on one another and then there's mean girls and this girls and now it's summer vacation and that's so awesome and yeah it was a time when my children you know they they demanded to have summer vacation and i just looked <laughs> at them like you from what what do you yeah why <laughs> There was another time where um, they wanted to ride the bus. They really wanted to go to school because they oh. wanted to. The bus. So, with that same set of families that I spoke to you about, we um, got on local public transportation. <laughs> and we took the bus around, we took the bus to Walmart, then we took the bus to lunch. And... Oh, that's so funny. But yeah, I think sometimes they they see what's on TV and they think that they're missing out on somebody yeah. taking the bus. Yeah, Because it's so normal and it, everything is surrounded all of that. It,
0: it was definitely an unpleasant surprise when my kids elected to go to school and realized that, unlike the Lizzie McGuire movie, they weren't chatting with their friends all day. In fact, they were expected to be silent for 80% to 90% of that day. Yeah. That came as a bit of a shock and a surprise. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> and that's always what gets me when people say, well, what about socialization? And I'm like, sure, what, when, you know. Right yeah walking to and from, maybe, but then sure, go walk there, and then I'll pick you up and we'll come back at home school, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, Julie, this was really such a pleasure. Thank you for coming and talking, especially because you've got this unique perspective as a as a single mom and as having had some kids in, and there's just a lot of a lot of really interesting interesting ways to look at education and and living an actual life, paying rent,
1: right <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. It's that uh, well. I'm I'm glad that you invited me and we spoke for a bit because I I feel very confidently that that what what I chose to do with my kids and keeping them home is really the best for them. And I do regret. I do apologize to my older ones all the time. I'm like I didn't know about homeschooling back then. Yeah. I I wasn't that smart. I wasn't that old, and I didn't. You know. Also also before the internet, I think it would have been much more difficult to homeschool. Mm. But I think now with the internet, you can invite professors from all over the world to hang out in your living room with you. Right. Yeah, <laughs> good point. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, I think it's, I, I hope that it's a growing movement, and I hope to see more people um, making the choice to, to school their children at home. And I part of that reason is because I think that if they do that, the schools are really going to have to reevaluate how they teach. Yeah. yeah. more and more. People are saying, no, we're not sending them to school. The schools are going to say, wow, maybe I'm doing something wrong here. Maybe we need to do it differently.
0: And I'm hoping that we as a society choose to value different things in that too. Like we've we've dumped so much on schools that the teaching is like, like a thing, one of many, 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 many things they're called on to do and then not funded to do any, that's any of it. That's true. So yeah. I'm with you. I would really like to see just read a quote that said, when things crack, that's where the light comes in. It's really interesting to get a look, just like a look at essential workers, like, oh, who's really essential? Yes. Oh, where is stuff not working? Yep. Yeah. That's great to have a spotlight
1: on. Yeah. Yeah. So Hopefully there'll be some good things that come out of this pandemic, right? right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things are different for sure.
1: Thanks very much. You're very welcome.
0: Here's another experience with a reading difficulty. My youngest, also had a reading disability but very very different from her older sister my youngest had an auditory processing issue primarily she could hear her hearing was right but she had a very common speech issue many many kids do she couldn't pronounce r's she said w l's sometimes w if you are not Processing what you hear properly, you're going to have trouble reading. If you hear an R as a W all the time, then really is actually W, -W -W E-A-W-W-Y. And like with her older sister, those sounds are not trustworthy. What I had to learn was that this kid needed a very different approach. We sent her to a learning center, Kumon. In my head, actually, it's funny. It's got another violin connection. It felt like Suzuki learning, and I think that's on purpose. You figure out where you are, and then you go back a couple levels so that you can always feel successful. And honestly, that's what I liked best about it. What's interesting about it is that there are many things that I would have not really approved of, you know, exercises to do over and over and over and over and over and over. But this kid worked great in that system. She loved the order. She loved the piece of it. And she loved the feeling it gave her when she completed these things. She told me she would do it for two years. And she did it for two years. And at the end of it, she had improved Her reading and writing amazingly. And for her, it went very, very slowly. And it also went along with her learning to decode orally and hear better the different sounds. And what's funny about that, what's funny about my older daughter as well, both of them ultimately outgrew. This issue. They figured out workarounds and they outgrew what was preventing them from figuring out work, workarounds. They are both unbelievably smart, productive young women now, which is what anybody can ask of this. But they had such different experiences. What I learned from my own upbringing. Was of no use or relevance to my first daughter. What I learned from my first daughter was of no use and no relevance to my third daughter. And my second daughter didn't have any of these problems at all. She had other things that she found difficult to work on, but reading was not one of them. The emphasis on reading as being the only way of intaking information is, quite frankly, lazy. There are always going to be a percentage of kids for whom that is not effective. So what, should they just be left on the side of the road? Or could we do better? Could we say, well, if we learn this through other means, if we watch a video on the Revolutionary War as well as read articles or textbooks on the Revolutionary War, as well as have audiobooks on the Revolutionary War. Won't all the kids learn about the Revolutionary War? One of the things that was interesting with both of my kids who had elementary age learning disabilities was spelling. They did go into school, both of them at various times, and I would go to the teachers that were doing language arts, and I would say, it's up to you to decide what you want from this kid when you do a spelling test. If you want them to be successful at spelling, then do it orally. If you want them to be successful at writing, they will need extra help. But under no circumstances should you make them feel like they're not good spellers. They're excellent spellers verbally. We make assumptions, first of all, that the way we do things is the best way to do things, and that is not borne out by the evidence. And secondly, we make assumptions that it was easy or natural to do it this way. We need to ask ourselves, once the reading moment has appeared and our kids are for some reason having difficulty with that I'm going to say this with reading but it's standing in for anything standing in for math it's standing in for physical things anything once that period has passed and our kid is now considered slow we need to ask ourselves what is important about this subject we're doing if it's history then they need to learn history through different methods. But they should not stop learning history because they have difficulty reading and writing. And too often, that's what we do. They shouldn't stop learning poetry because they're having difficulty reading or writing. We need to ask ourselves, what is the end game of this subject? And what are a variety of ways For people to get there, this is something that's come up a lot with math because of Common Core. Man, I know people who hate Common Core. It's interesting to look at the genesis of Common Core, which is the huge disparity that college professors find when their incoming freshmen arrive every fall. Many, 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 many of them are not able to then do college-level math for the various things they want to. For example, if you want to do economics, you're going to have to learn statistics, and you're not prepared to learn statistics because the math that got you there, you learned in this way that most of the rest of us learn. Those of us who are mad at Common Core, we learned drill and kill. We learned by rote. We learned that this is how you do things. That is a finite way of learning math. And we all know that on some level, because most of us that feel this way feel like we just barely got through and that it was hard and that we're never going to use it again and all the rest of it. What it fails to do is teach us that math is a kind of language and that it expands infinitely the same way language does, the same way that we start by learning sentences, but then we can create our own We can explain very, very complex concepts through language, having learned language. For math, the way that most of us were taught brings us up to the equivalent of maybe 8th or ninth grade or 10th grade and then stops allowing us to talk about concepts. We also learn in very slow, torturous ways How to do things. I read incredibly quickly. I can look at a page and just take in the words without a whole lot of difficulty. It's possible to do that if math is a language. It's possible, for example, to estimate effortlessly, to get a good sense of numbers and what they need to do because we already have such a solid background in the language and in the basics, and we were not taught this way. Common core is an attempt to teach this way. And we keep getting in the way of teaching mathematics as language, because we insist on going back to the way that we're familiar with. That said, there are going to be kids for whom that's a better way to learn. Much like with reading though, And phonetics, there are going to be some kids that are served fine by this older way. So maybe they should have the opportunity to learn that way. Math was a curriculum I did buy. I often talk about how inexpensive homeschooling was, and it was. But of course, I did buy some books. And what I bought for math, because I was so concerned that I was taught poorly, which I very much was, that I wanted to make sure that my kids didn't have the same anxiety around math that I did. And what I found was that many of the highest math scores of all kids in the world in math comprehension comes out of the very tiny country of Malaysia. And there is a company called Singapore Math that replicates the Malaysian math curriculum. And I bought it. There were a number of things I loved about it. From a social point of view, I loved that it was effortless integration. It wasn't like so many textbooks that I still see that is a ton of white kids and one black kid. But the specific math part of it was that all problems were given in at least three ways. There was a number problem, a word problem, and then perhaps some kind of like figuring like with props kind of problem, or perhaps more like common core problem. Everything was done, so the same concept was done with all of those options for every single concept, which meant that your kid could skip. They don't understand the word problem because the reading is difficult, but maybe the number one works perfectly, or maybe the one that starts with all the squares, ah, they get it, now go back to the other one because it's the same. Visualize it like you just did with this one. Oh, okay. It was this re- really brilliant way of reinforcing that's incredibly successful. And that one worked for all my kids, regardless of what their backgrounds or their difficulties were. I'm not endorsing specifically that. I am saying there is no need to be down on a new way of learning. Give it a chance. And if it doesn't suit this kid, find a different way to proceed. But if it doesn't suit you, back off and shut up. Which, as it happens, were the biggest things I learned when I homeschooled my kids. My role was to provide a learning environment and to back off and shut up and let them get on with walking, let them get on with reading, let them get on with math and ask me what they needed to. A little abrupt, a little alarming, and then unbelievably liberating that's it for this week's nine to thrive podcast be sure to visit working nine to thrive.com that's with the number nine to access show notes find resources and join the conversation thanks for listening